Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Uh, with me tonight, we have Paradox CEO and President Fred Wester. Fred, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. We also welcome Sham Srajani, uh, VP of Product Development and Acquisitions, and also the prestigious Unicorn Division over at Paradox. Thank you. Hi. I've kind of been wanting to talk to you guys for a while, because it's clear that Paradox is changing a lot. Uh, you know, it has changed a lot in these last few years. Uh, there's a lot of issues the company has had in the past few years and is addressing now. And also, I was just really interested to sort of hear you guys talk about your plans for the future uh, when I visited a few weeks ago and talk about how the company is changing and getting beyond just the uh, Paradox strategy games uh, from the development studio that you guys are kind of known for. Uh, so, you know, this is kind of just a chance for us to talk about the business side of uh, strategy publishing and niche publishing, which is something that um, we don't actually have a ton of insight into on the show. And it's kind of a frustration, right? There's a lot of people who speak, I think, in ignorance, and I'm probably among them, who speak in ignorance of the facts and how this side of the business really works. And so this is kind of a chance to maybe talk to you guys and hear about uh, what things look like from, from your end and what you've discovered works over the years. So before we get into all of that, though, I, I kind of wanted to just ask you both, uh, how, did you, how did you end up arriving at Paradox? Yeah, I can start. It was actually a coincidence because Paradox used to be another company before. It was two divisions that the company had. One of the, com- one of the divisions worked on IP licensing and one, one of the parts worked on computer games. That were seven people developing the European Versalis and Hearts of Iron series. And... Uh, I was brought in from the side more as a consultant to help turn around the computer games division. And this started because I had licensed an IP from the IP licensing part of Paradox. So he asked me, like, do you want to come here and, and help us turn around this company? So when I made the new business plan for the computer games division, they told me that this is never going to work. So they wanted to close it down. So I had the chance to take it over together with another guy. And, and uh, that was it. What were you doing before you came to Paradox? I actually used to be a management consultant uh, before that, but I've always been an avid gamer, so it suited me perfectly to change into actually gaming. Initially, I was a bit skeptical of seeing the games, like uh, the games world, as a bit like I don't know, strange. But um, I, I've it, it's developed a lot since I, I took it over like ten years ago. So a lot has happened in in the games industry and at the company as well. So. Now, real quickly, this when you when you decided to uh, get in, invest in Paradox and sort of spin off the uh, so the software division, um, this would have been when Johan was working on uh, the original EU. No, this is actually just after the release of Hearts of Iron One, so okay. it was just before the release of Victoria. So I, I, it's been a very interesting ride. I, the first thing that happened was that our American publisher, Strategy First, went bankrupt and owed us a lot of money. So we lacked cash. We didn't have any, like, we had every month we had to count, like, can we actually pay salaries this month? And it was, it was really, like, it, those were really bad times financially for the company. We still, we had a dedicated forum with, like, 20,000 members, a forum that is now over half a million people. Uh, so we knew we had a fan base and we knew we could sell games. So we just continued to struggle and built the company from the ground up. So it's been, it's been a great ride. Why, why did you decide to uh, 
What did you decide to get into the business with this company? I mean, thinking back to that time and the type of games that Paradox makes, it doesn't seem like that would have been... Um, well, you know, I mean, you, you look at you look at Hearts of Iron, you look at Europe Universalis, and they weren't they certainly weren't like the cool new thing that people were making, uh, you know, back then. Uh, so, what what did you see that other people didn't? Well, I, I've always been a big fan of strategy games. I play a game called Football Manager that is really big here in Europe, and Football Manager reminds me a lot about of the Europe Universalis and the Hearts of Iron titles. It has the same in-depth information and, and way of sucking people into the games you can play for like eight ten hours straight and very few games has that effect at least on me so i think i think i went i, I listened to my inner feelings like is this the right thing to do or not and and my inner feelings said that this was totally the right thing to do so uh i i didn't i didn't much in my job as a consultant, I did a lot of business anal analysis all the time. But in this case, I think it was more the emotion, more the passion for the games that drove me towards working with Paradox in the first place. So it wasn't a big business. It wasn't a big like enterprise back then. But uh, I think that the focus that we've had is what actually built the company what it is today. And now, Shams, your history with the company does not go back nearly that far, correct? No, that's correct. I, I joined the company, is it now, three and a half years ago, I think. Um, and uh, my first contact with uh, Paradox was actually when, during uh, my college years, when I was running and uh, organizing a competition called the Swedish Game Awards, which is an indie game development competition, which uh, later on spawned games such as Magicka, Sanctum, and a number of other different titles, Bloodline, um, uh, what's it called? Bloodline Champions? Uh, yeah. Exactly. And... Uh, I was involved with trying to coax Fred to give us money to sponsor that competition. And that's my first contact with uh, Avalanche, but uh, with the Paradox. But what happened afterwards is that once I started nearing my end of my college years, I did my master thesis project at Avalanche Studios. And I actually was hired there and I worked as a QA lead on uh, Just Cause 2. Uh, and then about two or three other canceled AAA titles before I... Um, finally said, you know what, um, I had a remembered Paradox fondly and I kind of got tired of AAA uh, side of things. And I said, you know what, I always wanted to try the try the, um, the publishing side of things. So I actually jumped ship and started that Paradox actually in marketing in uh, 2009, I think it was. That's, that's how I got started. Now, out of, out of curiosity, uh, what was it about? What was it about working in AAA that uh, sort of sort of drove you away from it? And you know, what what lessons did you take away from your time at Avalanche that you brought to Paradox? I mean, working with AAA is it's the 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 advantages are pretty clear in the sense that the sky's the limit, right? You have to, you have to push the envelopes as much as possible. But at the same time, uh, you are uh, I I didn't I I realized I wasn't that prepared for AAA in the sense that I had a lot of opinions and the position I had and most people have in AAA uh, development is that you're, you're a very small part, part of a bigger whole. And also what we noticed, uh, for me at least, it was very abundant that the power of the the creative power didn't always lie with the developer, although Avalanche did have a lot of creative control. Uh, there were just so many limitations, and you were working more with limitations than, than the opportunities and potential. So um, it it was fairly easy to just move on from that point on. And uh, uh, I would say that those are the biggest differences when it comes to AAA and um, 
uh, to smaller PC development that we're doing now. Uh, we have a much, much smaller budgets, but somehow that's more, that frees us up to do much more things, almost. When you're, when you have so, that big budgets, you're almost limited by that big budgets in that sense. Now, as I understand it, uh, because we talked about this a little bit uh, in Stockholm, uh, Paradox is not a publicly traded company, correct? That is correct. So you've never you've you've never taken outside investment? No, we have not. We ever actually, <clears throat> when my business partner, we were two, t- took over the company in 2004. So when he was bought out, we brought in an investment company, but we never raised any capital from them. They just bought him out. So we never injected any big amounts of capital into the into the company. So we. So all so all your growth to date has been from sort of reinvesting your own profits into the company. That's correct. We've grown organically since yeah 2003 and forward. So right there, I mean, that's a huge difference from the way a lot of publishers uh, operate. And I'm curious, I mean, certainly it, it gives you a degree of independence that a lot of other companies don't have, that they, they have, they're ultimately answerable to, uh, to shareholders. But at, at the same time, uh, you know, have you ever had moments where you think, you know, really, like, we, we could have we gotten where we are so much faster if we just, you know, ra- you know raised some capital and sort of gotten on with our plans rather than wait for the profits to accumulate uh, enough to enable that? Yeah, there is always, it depends on how you want to build the company, I guess. Like, if you want to go fast and uh, try to make a big splash into the market the same year as you as you basically launch your company, you can do that. It, those are bigger risks, obviously, uh, connected with that, because you have, maybe you haven't tried the market or you, or you are not sure about how the market looks. Or maybe you can just take advantage of an opportunity like Zynga did with the whole Facebook thing. You saw it growing and you wanted to inject capital so you could grow it faster. We are The most important thing for Paradox on growing the company has been that we are always in charge on what we're doing and we're never chasing the next quarter all the time as the quarterly capitalism that you see today. Like, okay, we need to make profits for next quarter. So we we can plan our business ahead two years and say, okay, what do we want to do in 18 months from now? And how are we going to do that without anyone else interfering in the way we're working or what kind of profits we have to do or what kind of games we have to close because we need to show a better profit for the next quarter or for the next year. So that has always been more important to us than to grow faster. On the other hand, we've grown really fast even without the capital injected. So we'll see what happens. I mean, if we're injecting capital, because I'm not closing the door to that, we need to be very sure about what the new owners are going to bring to the table and uh, uh, what demands they will have on our business so so we don't have to sacrifice the freedom that we're enjoying at the moment. Yeah, and and I'd like to add also that growth is one part of it is additional capital and being able to fund bigger productions and we would probably never have been able to do games like Wizard Wars or uh, War of the Roses if it wasn't for the capital. But at the same time, one thing that people keep asking us all the time is that, okay, so now that you're growing so tremendously, what are you going to do not to lose your human touch? How do you avoid turning into Skynet? And I think that one of the, one of the ways to avoid that is to grow organically rather than getting injected with just nanites and cash being in this case and turning into that kind of machine, right? Because as we grow organically, that's how we retain the culture. I'd say that during the three and a half years 
I've been with the, the company when I started over three and a half years. When I started, I was amazed that everyone in the company actually hung out on the forums. Fred answered individual posts and not only complaints, actually engaged with uh, people in the forums and discussions. And we had a much smaller forum back then. And I'm happy to say that today we still do engage with everyone even more, I'd say, today. Because there are so much other social media that we uh, communicate with our players in that sense. And I think that growing is part cash, but also part culture. And uh, I don't think that we would be able to grow in a sensible way uh, with just uh, an injection of outside funding. Because that we essentially lose what we are if we do that, by and large. Now, when we talk about sort of the arc that paradox has has taken over the years um how much how how much of your growth has sort of been fueled by the uh development studio games uh the eus the victorias the uh hearts of irons and how much was your publishing division uh fueling that uh, you know if you had to if you had to give you know if you had to talk about like the foundation the foundation of the paradox business model uh to to what degree did one contribute over the other we had we had a company meeting last week, our annual company meeting in May, and uh, I, one of the, the one of the ways I described how Paradox has grown from a developer into a publisher today is that uh, the PDS games that we call them PDS nowadays, the internally developed Paradox games, have always been the engine of Paradox. They keep us going at. Uh, a great pace sometimes uh, at a slow and steady pace sometimes at a really fast pace as with uh, Crusader Kings for instance but they've always kept us going at a great pace and then with the as Fred has built the publishing part of Paradox in a very deliberate way we, we t- we've taken risks with a number of different uh, projects and once in a while those risks pay off and those risks act as a booster or an afterburner that lets us just take off even more. So PDS has always been the engine and the publishing um, side of things have acted as really powerful boosters for us. Yeah, the the Paradox Development Studios games has been the foundation of the company all along. And those are the things we know will come and we know that the target audience is there and a lot of the other games, like if you take a game like Magicka, <clears throat> that was a big, that was actually a big risk for us to take that game because it was a new team, it was a new concept, it was a new technology, and everything was basically new. So all the checkboxes just said risk, big risk to us. But on the other hand, we we want to make, <clears throat> we want to take gr- great concepts that we like ourselves and and try to finalize them and make them into great games as well. So it's a very good. <clears throat> balance between the safety that is Paradox Development Studios. I wouldn't say we play it safe all the time, but we know that the target audience, the size of that and what they expect from us. So it's it's easier to make games for that audience at the moment, uh, since we already worked it up, than it is to make a completely new uh, new IP, obviously. One of, one of the things that uh, Paradox Publishing, at least, sort of became known for was the buggy, unfinished release. And I remember a couple a couple years ago, actually, I, I I was writing this editorial. I didn't end up publishing it just because it it just sort of I hate windy editorials, man. I I just I, I like reading it. I was just like, this sounds like it sounds like I'm just being an asshole. But it was um, 
but it was basically like I, I was really close to like holding you guys over the fire, and a lot of people did uh, over the state of a number of uh, really troubled releases you had. Like I think Magico right now, it's often cited as this huge success. It was a sort of breakthrough fun moment for Paradox uh, that really caught on. But the initial like you know days and weeks after it released uh, were were really brutal. Uh, there were games like Sword of the Stars two uh, that uh, review code didn't go go out until the uh, not even the last possible minute. We we waited a week for it. Uh, so I mean there were there were there were a number of low moments when it came to uh, product quality control. And uh, let's not even talk about Gettysburg Armored Warfare. Actually, let's talk about Gettysburg Armored Warfare um, because. Uh, it just seemed like Paradox was trying really nervy things, uh, backing really bold, uh, sort of daring visions. And then when it came time to ship the game, it was a total crapshoot as to whether or not that was going to be playable or good uh, for the user. Uh, so let me ask you, first of all, you guys are still in business and you grew a lot during this period. Did that actually work? Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> you know what? I, I will not. I will not say anything against what you're saying about the game or the state that it was in. And I was actually the one signing it, so I, I am the one that one that should be blamed for it as well. So, um, thing is that there were several things with that game that spoke to me. Uh, oh, which a, game as in particular? Game. Gettysburg. Gettysburg. Okay. Uh, not the finished product, I will just say that. But original concept. Yeah. The original concept was f fantastic in so many different ways. First of all, it was a one-man team with a genius guy who just programmed stuff, and he's he's great. He's a great programmer. We, he was inexperienced, and we were a bit inexperienced as a publisher as well. And we, st I mean, we had our first external producer for an external game was hired, yeah, three and a half years ago, basically. So it's taken us up until. Uh, it took us a few years to figure out, like, yeah, this is actually how we work with a game release process. And uh, so it was basically a noob uh, project, both from our side and from his side. And the, the project ended up, as you would imagine, a noob publisher with a noob developer going. So now there are no excuses for releasing buggy games, but th that's the only explanation for it. I'm not trying to... Uh, have an excuse for it, but the explanation is is, is fairly simple, and and uh, I think we've improved since. We learned a lot from. We had sort of the stars too, just releasing before that, and then Gettysburg Armor Warfare. And I said we're not going to have any more releases like this. And now, uh, the position that we're in at the moment, from from a bug or a perspective or whatever you call it, is that. People treat us like they would treat, for example, Blizzard or uh, EA when it comes to games, which is good. And, and I, I like to be compared to all the big guys. Although we're EA, maybe it's 10,000 employees worldwide, and we're just over 100, including our studios. Uh, so we are not getting the same... Uh, we can't use the same excuses as, as the uh, independent teams used that we used to do like six or seven years ago that we could say, hey, we're still independent. So we're, in, we're middle man, so to speak, or a smaller middle man who are, who are working um, with the demands people have of the big guys. And it's a very tough position to be in. And, and uh, we're doing our absolutely best here because we're getting no... Um, extra chances from the press at the moment and we're we're aware of that so uh, we we have to tread a very fine path going forward 
and I've so far never contacted any single journalist because I can feel sometimes that people can just dismiss our games and give them low scores because we're not a big player either. I mean, look at a game. I can take another example of a good game that received two low scores. Say Gettysburg received a well-deserved 22, and that's all good and, and dandy, and I, I will not dispute that. But then you have a game like Warlock, Master of the Arcane, that was great out of the, out of the box. It was a great game. It played really well. It had basically everything you could say is good and, and important for a release. And people scored it on an average of 70 on Metacritic. And I think that's too low. So I think that we're... What you see from your perspective, from the journalist perspective most of the time, is that, oh, they release some buggy, shitty games. I agree to that. But we're also getting a lot of slack because of that on our other titles that deserve better. So I guess it, uh, it works both ways. I like to add to that and say that, I mean, <clears throat> what we're seeing, the games that are being released today always represent uh, mistakes or the situation that existed 18 months ago. Uh, and if you compare Paradox today to eight, to 18 months before that and then go back 18 more months, you see there are huge differences between the company. And and like like Fred said, when, when I started, there was one producer at the company. Today there are 12, I think, in the publishing unit. And you won't see the fruits of that kind of improvement until 10 to 18 more months and I mean and we've I think that Fred's said this over the course of the two past paradox yearly events that we're we're going to avoid try to making the horrible uh, releases that we've had thus far and improve the quality but that takes time to see the results of and um, it's it's been it's been a in the, it's been a mixed bag right I mean we talked about Magicka before that what what Magicka did was that it acted like the most a giant, the biggest afterburner we ever experienced in the company, and it just suddenly, we we were in a position where we we're looking at the, pl the the plans we had and for how we wanted the company to grow, and we said, you know what, we have to accelerate the plans by a factor of ten, and that meant that we, you know, the risks that we were going to take over the course of three years, we had to take them over the course of nine months, and suddenly starts doing and signing on projects that conceptually we're cool but we realize that they're probably going to be big risks and we have to really really try really hard to try to hit those marks and unfortunately you know a bunch of times we didn't really we did we weren't able to do it and the result was that we had the past two years i would describe them as very exciting and that were the the like uh, president nixon would say mistakes were made during the past two years, but as a result, we've learned a lot from the games, and I think that you'll see, we'll start seeing. I think we're seeing it already. Just compare to, just compare, uh, just take PDS releases from from three years ago. Mm -hmm. Hearts of Iron Three was released three and a half uh, year, years ago in September two thousand nine. It was at launch, widely panned internally as a, a broken game, and it. It was a very hard thing for the development team, I know, and generally it was it was one of those moment wake up calls, and we made a conscious effort at that time to make sure that we beefed up internal QA. So the next release after that was Victoria 2, and that was a, a big step forwards. And then we have Crusader Kings 2, and just putting Crusader Kings 2 next to 
Hearts of Iron 3 and comparing them in, in quality when it comes to stability and QA overall. It, it's, just, it's night and day. And then we have EU4 around the corner now that I will think that the gap between CK2 and EU4 will be even bigger. Um, so you can... I, I definitely agree that we our quality when it comes to some parts of uh, the game's release still needs a tremendous amount of work, but there are other parts of the uh, the stuff we release where the quality and the, has been improved tremendously. We just need to make sure that we get that kind of improvement across the board. And uh, we're, we're slowly seeing that. Again, um, Magicka, I think that we patched the game 14 times in 13 days, so much that we started seeing that the pirates on, uh, on Pirate Bay, for instance, stopped posting or stopped uploading new pirated versions of, of the game because they said that we can't keep up with the developers who are patching the game this much. And uh, the Magicka release compared to the Showdown Effect release made by the same team uh, two years later showed an immense improvement in quality when it came to stability and uh, network and just, just sheer amount of bugs that were reported. Uh, just it, that was also night and day, but at the same time, there were other games who weren't didn't see as big as a big of an improvement. And another thing you could add as well is that <clears throat> we want to work with new concepts. We want to work with uh, taking risk. We want to work on on new areas that people haven't maybe haven't explored before. If if the chance is given, we'll, we want to do new things, and that means taking totally new development risks. It means like jumping into something yeah. that you have no idea where it's going to end, and it feels like a lot of people are uh, say all the time, "Oh, we want to see something new. We want to see new things," but they have no idea how hard it is. And, and the a lot of the media has driven a lot of publishers and developers into this sequelitis as yeah. we call the illness <laughs> paradox, like that you're only doing sequels to things that you already know because new games were score lower, on, for example, on Metacritic because people don't know what to expect. So you play the expectation game with journalists and, and all of that, and it will be a higher for each new target audience. So it, it, it kind of, it, it's really hard to work on yeah. new concepts, but we really want to do that. We had a meeting really just yesterday, so, I think it was, with our CFO regarding... Uh, we're talking about financing a new game or something. And uh, uh, one of the things he said was that, you know what, some of our games aren't selling enough, so we maybe can't start doing this game. And uh, we need to sign more games that uh, pull in more money. And uh, Fred quickly turned back to him and said, you know what, we're probably going to sign more games that don't make money because we want to be able to take those chances. We want to be able to take a chance with that one-man team or a two-man team that nobody else tries to do because, you know what, we like to take take chances and sometimes try projects that no one else dares to do and we know that these sometimes will, won't pan out sometimes the QA will be bad sometimes the tutorials won't be up to snuff other times the learning curve will be just shit but once we will still be taking those risks and it's 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 something that's very deliberate and we have to pay the price for it sometimes and we of course will try to mitigate the bad sides as much as possible but maybe I don't know the, the problem is perhaps that we are not clear enough outward that we we are that kind of publisher or company that likes to take chances and give the one-man team a chance to develop his his dream project or approach two guys internally and say, you know what, you, we heard about this great idea. How about you stop working on Victoria 2 and start making this game instead? So, But there are, of course, drawbacks. Yeah, you know, I mean... 
I, to- I totally understand what you're saying, and, and especially what you were saying a moment ago, Fred, about uh, the way you know the media and reviewers tend to sort of push companies in more risk-averse directions. And uh, you know, certainly, I'm guilty of it at times. Uh, you know, what you know, if if journal if if games writers have a bias, I think it's it's for the underdog, and so it's really easy uh, to see a game like Gettysburg Armored Warfare at ParadoxCon. Uh, what was it like three years ago in New York? Uh, which is when I saw it. And it's a great story. It's one guy making kind of a batshit crazy game uh, that's really unlike anything else you've seen. And he's, yeah, he's doing it completely by himself. Uh, And it's this weird genre blending thing. And so it's really easy uh, to write a really uh, enthusiastic preview about it because it's all potential. And you're, you're sort of caught up in the, this guy could really do this and it'll be amazing. But the problem is, you know, that same that same preview writer, when that game releases, will cut your throat and then say, how dare you release this piece of garbage uh, <laughs> yeah, to, I'm, I'm, to the public. I'm, I'm, and I will never, like, be blame anyone who says this is garbage if we release something that is garbage. So what we have to do is close games where we see that they don't work out. The only thing I'm worried about is that we're going to start to play it safe because we don't really want to play it safe all across the board. We want to be able to do crazy projects. Yeah. We want to be able to sign things that just doesn't make sense. I mean... I have this fight, I can tell you that now. The the uh, Russians who made the game, you know, the cargo. Yes. Right. So uh, we watched this. Right? I had a fight with, with the Shams, among others, about the Russian game called the cargo. And I really want to make, it, make a sequel to that game. I don't really remember it exactly, but it was something like this. You, you land on this foreign planet, which has no gravitation whatsoever, <laughs> and you kind of walk around on the surface. However, that is possible. There's some, some gravitation, I guess. And what you basically do as a gameplay to begin with is that, that you kick around little midgets who are naked. Uh, and these midgets are so happy when you kick them around because they, they start move. They form little orchestras that play music. And the music makes the gravitation comes, come back. So things start falling out of the sky, like a piano or like a whole, I don't know, building or something. And that was an awesome game i played for like two hours and i really loved it and the team said this is too crazy i'm like we could make it an mmo and people were like no way but had it been up to me i would have totally done the cargo mmo it would just be too much for everyone and i don't know if we would have ever made any money from it but we certainly would have made a pr splash and, and people would have said at least like at least this is something new like, like sometimes you just want to you just want to stir up some emotion and you want to do something that you haven't seen before and i i mean when i see crazy concepts i just i just go for it and shams knows that as well yeah. so we sometimes we need to hold each other back rob let me ask you one thing we were talking about uh when reviewers write a preview and then it's time for yeah. um the review and we talk about the underdog story do you think that there is a phenomenon in the uh among journalists that they end up being rooting for the underdog being paradox several times in a row and then we release a couple of bad games and they try to still be on our side or give us a a good score be lenient and then a game comes out that's not awful but it's maybe mediocre and that game ends up being get getting the brunt of the other games that maybe deserved it do you see that there's a backlash or rubber banding effect on that um, uh, 
so I think so I think we're talking like the psychology of reviews, and I think it changes from reviewer to reviewer. Uh, the the context matters. Like certainly, uh, like paradox games don't exist in a vacuum for me. Uh, I you know I tend to look a little harder for uh, things that will make them buggy or unplayable or you know just broken in some way. Um, but I, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure that I see like uh, what you just what you describe almost sounds like um, like a certain game gets hit with almost like retribution uh that you're out of your you're out of second chances and this time we're just going to uh hit you hard i don't think that's so much true but here here's maybe where here's maybe where it does come into play um a lot of review review point scales are like on 100 points right and really if you ask me what is the difference between like a 75 and a 70 i couldn't you know what I mean? Like a lot of times, the number you pick there is just kind of arbitrary based on like you can defend most of the score, but then there's that last little bit that's just the benefit of the doubt. And so I think what ends up happening is you just lose the benefit of the doubt after a certain point. From your side, it probably looks like retribution, but what you're seeing is probably a lot of individual viewers who are like, "I was torn between like a seven or an eight, but I just think it's you know with these guys, it's probably a seven. So seven it is." Um, with uh by the way you brought up warlock master of the arcane uh just a little while ago um there i don't i there i don't think uh necessarily you guys were being penalized for sort of a sort of a track record i I think um you know my my buddy tom chick would say that 70 is a perfectly respectable score particularly for a solid genre game um you know you got a lot of favorable reviews uh you know again from from your perspective seeing it sort of slip down into that mixed review category is probably re- really disappointing but i uh, i think what what you're seeing there is just um you know it's not it, it doesn't get the civilization effect where it's like judged as a game that's just for everybody on its own uh, you know on the strength of its own past uh you're kind of coming out of nowhere and you're just kind of getting treated more as a uh niche strategy game which yeah. yeah, yeah, no, no, no. It's funny you mentioned Tom Chick there. Uh, I saw that he he scored it sixty, and I know that he scored it the lowest of all reviewers actually uh, reviewing Warlock Master of the Arcade. We keep track. Which is actually also true for when he reviewed Crusader Kings two. He reviewed it the lowest of all reviewers yeah. uh, for that game. So, I guess that uh, it varies. You, str- you hit it well with some reviewers, and maybe not so much with some other reviewers, and and that's not like. Yeah, and another question. Do you, do you think that g- gamers or journalists, both really, when they start up a Paradox game, do they expect it to be buggy, do you think? Is that a, a, like a, does it come pre-packaged with that conception? I think, I think a while ways? ago, probably, yeah. Uh, but I, with me right now, like, first of all, the first question for me is, is it from Paradox, Paradox Development Studio or is it from Paradox Interactive? Uh, because the PDS guys have been like, see, I, I didn't get into their games till asked after Hearts of Iron 3. Uh, my first experience was um, Heir to the Throne uh, EU3. And by that point, the game was, you know, patched to being really good, and then the expansions had made it great. Uh, and, and after that, I didn't really see any more huge fumbles from uh, from the development studio guys. Uh, and, 
you know, to actually you cited them a moment ago, actually, as an example of how your commitment to how your quality is improving and everything. But where I'd push back on that is Paradox development is getting much better at making their games and testing them and making sure that what comes out on day one is uh, roughly as good as it, as good as it can be. Uh, they've improved a great deal at that. Where things are still a bit uh, more chancy or seem a bit more chancy is uh, is games coming coming from the publishing arm. Uh, I didn't know. I didn't play it. I didn't play. I didn't play Empire. I played it at the uh, event in Iceland, and I never uh, actually. I never. I, I never uh, followed up with uh, your with your PR guy for a code. But what I heard from a lot of people who, like me, had been sort of like uh, a little bit excited about the game, thinking it looked pretty cool, looked like a you know successful heir to a dungeon keeper, uh, was that it was a really disappointing game and just didn't really work as a strategy as a strategy game and stuff like that, where it might not be a an armored warfare uh, level failure where you just have a sort of failure to launch uh, but you do have a problem where you've just you you've you've released a, a fairly polished not very good game uh, and so that that still creates uh, that that's a different expectation you're creating there yeah well beauty is in the eye of the beholder I mean and uh, it's always like these reviews that I saw a European Versalis 3 preview saying, oh, they didn't have tactical battles like Total War, so I was so disappointed and scored 4 out of 10. So, <laughs> And it's basically the same to do that with Empire saying, this is not Dungeon Keepers, it's 4 out of 10. And, and well, that... Uh, or Well, actually, I don't. So it's, it's wrong for me to say that. So I don't respect that. Sorry. <laughs> you, you have to have a new approach. Like, if you're going to review a game, you need to take a fresh approach and actually try to understand the game. And if you can't do yeah. that, you should just stay away from it. Yeah. And that's my, that's my take on it. You yeah. know, and... and uh, I've never emailed a journalist in my entire life, and I take pride in that, but sometimes I feel like it, and I never feel like it when someone scores the game low, only when people are sloppy, and you see that they haven't played the game. Like, I've read some Empire reviews. I played the game myself for 30 hours, and I saw some things that were clearly not correct, that were actual mistakes made. And that is like... In the reviews, you mean? In the reviews, yes. Okay. That, and uh, so, what are you supposed to do? Like, just sit back and, and uh, like I don't know I, I've stopped being uh, angry and upset about that a long time ago because this has been going on for many years so I'm not I'm not really like but I feel that people are doing it in some games but not to other games right you have you have a lot of I don't know you can defend some games until your death although they're buggy, although they're unfinished. Some sometimes. games get a free pass? Yeah, some some games and some publishers do. Don't you feel that we get a free pass, though, on some of our games? Well, we do. Like, Europa Universalis 4 is probably going to get a free pass from a lot of people because they are, like, people are a bit scared about that game because if you don't understand it and you're, you're scoring it low and you haven't played it, they're going to be attacked by an angry mob from our forums. And I respect that people are, are afraid of that. And that this happens to a lot of games that has a big following. That So, so I, know, I know that we're getting a lot of attention on European or Solid 4. And we do have a lot of people, we have a lot of reviewers who already played number one, two, three. So of course, that's a big advantage. As well. And that's part of, like I said, that's part of the challenge on launching new IP as well, that you play an expectation game. And if a game looks... For example, like Dungeon Keeper, people are going to think Dungeon Keeper and they're going to see everything that deviates from Dungeon Keeper as something negative. Although, like, 
it's going to be very hard to do and, and that's one of the reasons that we're we were doing uh we can tell you this for the first time i'm not sure we've spoken about cartel before no uh, not really but, uh, we, we've been working on a concept called cartel that was basically uh on on syndicate uh, like the same kind of feeling the same spiritual kind of remake sort of a spiritual not a spiritual successor but they're very heavily influenced by it but yeah. seeing how like how games that are spiritual successors of old games are being actually received uh we decided not to go through with that concept we've been working on it for a year and a half and we said like we don't want to make a straight out carbon copy of syndicate because that wouldn't be fair to us it wouldn't be fair to the developer and it wouldn't be fair to the original developers yeah, of syndicate it, it, either it, yeah. so it's it's better that we we work on something completely new and like a completely new project it's it's not even a only a question of that it just when we started looking at the concept we uh and we we started tweaking and trying out different ideas and during this time this was when kickstarter really exploded and what Kickstarter basically was was just a giant nostalgia trip and people asking for money for remakes of old games and stuff like that. And uh, the, during this time, the uh, the ugly beast of gamer entitlement reared its head. And we were really active in a lot of discussions, a lot of forums, a lot of places about what people, what kind of expectations people had on kind of games, how, how they received how they treated the stuff that they got in in relation to what they were expecting and stuff like that. So, and during this process, we 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 started changing our opinion about how one would go about creating a spiritual remake or a game similar to Syndicate. And we realized that you know what, it's it's all in a lot of ways, it's it's not an impossible mission, but it's it's damn hard, and it's in a lot of ways just not worth it because you could end up making a really good game, but you could fail horribly anyway because people's expectations are so incredibly skewed. I think that we we went through the same discussions when we talked about Homeworld when we were bidding on that IP and Fred and I, you and I talked back and forth several times and we're like even if we buy it manage to win this bidding war, we might not even even attempt to make a Homeworld 3. Because that's the first idea people have. Like, oh, okay, so that you get somebody buys Homeworld, that means somebody's making a sequel, especially Paradox. And for us it wasn't uh, a a given and at times we were really sure that if we win this, we'll never do a sequel because expectations are so high. They're so strange and it's not something that we can match. Even if we would have headhunted each an individual uh, original developer and had a super transparent process and had the community design every feature as if that was a good thing. But really try to do it in the right way. It wouldn't have, it was almost doomed to fail from the start. So... So for Cartel, we decided that, you know what, uh, the base that we had was fine, but we decided that this was not one of those scenarios when we wanted to proceed with the, the game and the concept to take it to the next level. But we'll see. We have a lot of other cool <laughs> concepts as well. <laughs> we, we rather, it's not new ideas that we lack. It's more like funds and, and like a good developer to work with yeah. that, that holds us back. So we're not, we're not worried about that. It's really, it's really a lot of so as far as um, you know, I, I raised this uh, a little earlier in our conversation because I've always sort of wondered about it. Uh, for for those years when you were sort of releasing um, 
you know more buggy releases both from uh, PDS and from uh, and from outside studios here's my question the company was still quite successful during this period you still grew a lot over this period and I think uh, there's sort of an expectation that if you do this uh, it's going to sort of there's going to be such a backlash that it, it can uh, really hurt your company and here's what I, here's what I'm curious about for all that people complain about buggy releases for all guys like me sort of moralize about the importance of releasing a finished product to to gamers uh, and and not sort of uh, releasing a beta, uh, you know, to to uh, a paid beta. Um, when it comes to like actual sales and you know actual revenue, does it actually hurt you to do that? One of the reasons we released games too early, uh, several years back, was that it was lack of cash flow. Partly, we we were underfunded. We had p- publishers go bankrupt. First strategy first, then we had a U.S. distributor where we had problems getting funds on time. Uh, and we've had a lot of things like that happening. In the games industry, it was a lot of things like that. There were, were no payments made on time before 2009, almost. Like, it was a chaos throughout the industry if you weren't working for one of the big guys. After 2009, digital distribution hit. And we we started the download portal, uh, Gamerscape, in 2006. It started, like, trickling in revenue every month. That was, like, secure to us. And th- that was the first foundation that we made like okay we can make some money that we know are coming in each month and then we started working with all the other digital distributors in 2008 and obviously valve has been a great partner in this and and they have been not only a good partner for us Uh, but also a pioneer for the whole PC gaming industry. They really took the lead when everyone said PC gaming is dead. They really showed people that, you know what, an open platform is in many ways superior to a closed console environment. So um, so after that, with our financials being better, we have released better games. But it's also a learning process. Like we said, we haven't had the producer team in place. So... Products development studios. We think we have a really good process. We know how to release games. We know how to how to make them uh, good on release. And some of the games from the interactive team has been good in the last year. And some of them needs still need some work. And uh, going forward, I think step by step we're improving the quality. I would say that if I look two ba- back two years. Oh, oh, I, I know, I know. I think you're improving the qu- the quality. That wasn't my question. My question was just being as cold blooded and mercenary as possible. Like just pretend, like just twirl your mustaches. Your your Fred Wester, international bastard. It's pretty close to him, um, actually. It's normal Fred as well. Those two. <laughs> oh, excellent. Did you know when it comes to when it when it came to revenue when it came to sales, you know it still looked from the outside like Paradox was succeeding despite releasing. Uh, okay, you know, so yeah. here's Dodgy the deal. Games. Here's the deal. A game that's uh, crap quality-wise that does definitely impact sales on that specific game. It doesn't necessarily mean that every game is dead in the water, never makes money. We have some of our worst releases have made uh, a healthy chunk of change. That's uh, that's a fact, but here, here's the beautiful part about Paradox is that when you have a, a good engine like the uh, internally development games, you can still grow as a company despite having individual failures. So uh, I think that uh, maybe from the outside, that's the weird part. Paradox has grown tr- still tremendously over two years, and maybe uh, during these two years, we've also released some of the uh, buggiest games in our history. Maybe, I don't know. Yep. Uh, is that is that the question in that sense that how how do we keep growing despite having the the 
buggiest releases. Yeah, well, yeah, but I was also like curious, like you know, games like um, oh boy, no, so no, so I was just I was trying to think of what what would be a, what would be a good example. So obviously, obviously, the like, game like Magicka turned out to be a huge success, right? Uh, and and that, but that you got in fairly good working order. Uh, it just it needed patches. It didn't need to be completely sort of uh, remade, rehauled. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but now I'm, I'm trying to think of of some other projects. So let's say um. Okay, did you guys have ever you, you you guys ended up making uh what was it Woody Two Legs? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So like a game like that, like not not a particularly strong game. It's it's a, a weird little weird game. No, yeah. For all bottom line, purposes, bottom line, is that yeah. good for Paradox or is that a failure? Well, it, it was just made <clears throat> that was not a big uh, big game for us. It was just made in between uh, two different projects from Nitro Games that made yeah. uh, uh, after finishing was it East India or was it Commander Conquest of the Americas? Uh, so it was it wasn't really a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> the the, the answer is no. It was like it, it was not a big success. No, it was not. It was more like uh, it covered the uh, the cost that we had for the development. Yeah. it was more of a. In in hindsight, uh, maybe one of those games that we maybe should have gone use that time and effort on a, on a different game like. Yeah. All right. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, I love it. This is I love I love how like incredibly frank this is. This is fantastic. I, I never want this to end. It doesn't okay, have to. So <laughs> 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 okay. Um, so when it comes to managing external projects, uh, what what what's the big challenge there? You, you've you've beefed up your production staff, but ultimately they're not in-house. You can't, like, go down the hall and ask, like, uh, Thomas or Johan what the hell's going on. So how, do, how, are, how are you going... How do you monitor these games and sort of what are some problems you run into when you try to operate studio, uh, operate with partners remotely? The, the, what we've done during the last two years is that uh, we've consciously, as we've beefed up the, the number of producers that we've had, we've also made a conscious dis- effort to work more with Swedish developers. And this is something that you see if you go compare it to the titles that were released between 2006 and 9, and then from, from 2009 until 2012, you'll see that there are a large number of Swedish developers. And some of these are in Stockholm. For instance, Fatshark we work with a lot, uh, Arrowhead Game Studios, but at the same time, we also work with uh, a lot of smaller studios in a s- smaller Swedish town called Hövda, and we walk, uh, we work with a uh, Pieces Interactive, um, uh, with Ludosity, and we've also worked with a uh, Zeal uh, that made uh, game of, uh, a game of dwarves, right? So one of the conscious efforts we've had is to work with more local developers, and. Uh, what we've also uh, done is that we've tried to put a number of. Uh, I think that the the challenge hasn't necessarily been that you can go over to the developers and talk to them face to face. Is that a lot of the times we've worked with first time developers, and that's been a huge challenge. And if you go ask Susanna, what's the hardest part of working with a developer? She she won't answer uh, difficult developers. She won't say that uh, though the. the, the the divas and the developers with personalities are the one that they are the hardest to work with necessarily. Uh, what's really challenging is to work with first-time developers and that they're, it's, it's very easy to just state and say, okay, they're inexperienced. But what does exactly inexperienced mean? Ultimately, it means that everything we do, we end up having to explain, uh, explain our actions 
much, much more. And we need to sit down and have discussions about things that we wouldn't have need to otherwise. And that saps energy and that saps time and uh, time that could be more devoted into other things. And I think that if you talk to the Arrowhead guys, if you talk to the critical guys that made Dungeon Land, what they'd say, what they freely admit that during their first project, they almost squandered 75% of the funds or worked very inefficiently during the first 75% uh, of the of the project. And that those are the biggest challenges when it comes to working with external developers, that we work with a lot of first-time developers. And going forwards, that doesn't mean that we won't be working with small-time developers. Um, it just means that we'll be working with... Uh, a smaller percentage of our new games will be with first-time developers. We'll still always work with first-time developers because we feel that a lot of the innovation and risk-taking comes from people who are not yet constrained by all the all the restrictions that exist in game development. They they do take chances and they they never the thought that this is actually impossible to make never crosses their mind. They just go for it and sometimes they make it. Uh, so that, that I would say that that's the biggest challenge working with uh, external developers. And uh, uh, yeah, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> no, that, no, that was it. You you, you covered it well. Um, I, I guess you know something that you know you and I have had this conversation, uh, and you alluded to it earlier. In the uh, I guess, for lack of a better phrase, we'll say it's the uh, the keep paradox weird movement. You are you are the Portland <laughs> of uh, game what, publishers. The what? I, I suppose. Por- uh, Portland. Uh, yeah. The the um, have you seen this uh, series Portlandia? I have not. No. no, it's a great series. But I no, but I, I always compare us to music, and I say like if Activision is Justin Bieber and like EA can be uh, uh, Lady Gaga, for example, or whatever. <laughs> what are the, we? We're Motorhead, I think. <laughs> um, I I could be Lemmy Kilmister with a wart on his, his chin, and and the just, ugly weird kid. <laughs> no, he's not that ugly. He's, he's just pretty he, ugly though. Ah, uh, no, I think I think it just looks really special. And uh, I, I well we. But the thing is that we want to be Motorhead. We don't want to be Justin Bieber. So to us, it's really great. Uh, and and we want to sing Ace of Spades over and over again. No, not over and over again. We want to make new songs like Overkill as well. But, but at the same time, like if part of what makes you guys weird is working with sort of long-shot developers... Uh, how do you how, so? How do you balance the fact that on the one hand your company has a lot of stable properties that you guys can sort of return to, and they've got a fan base, and they're going to be reliable, and you can pretty much just count on that's going to generate a certain amount of profit, and it's not going to be uh, some sort of nightmarish development. But then, kind of a lot of a lot of what gets people sort of certainly a lot of what gets me excited for paradox games at times is the fact that. Sometimes when I look at your publishing lineup, there are those games on the list that I'm like, oh man, that thing has like a very narrow chance of actually like working out. But if it does, it's if they manage to stick the landing, it's going to be amazing. Uh, so, but at the same time, like I gotta admit, if I were in your shoes, I'd probably chicken out and just be like, okay, we're just we're we're done with the long shots. Uh, so, so how do you guys like? First of all, so how do you guys keep returning to that, uh, sort of justifying it to yourselves? But then also, how do you improve the odds on your long shots? Exactly. I think that when I say this, I'm going to sound really stupid, but one of the mistakes, one of the things that we learned over the course of the last past two years is that when you take risks, don't necessarily go full on out crazy with the risk taking. So for instance, uh, some of the risks that we took last year was that we worked with entirely new developers 
not they were not only first-time developers they never worked with paradox or any publisher before we work with new technologies brand new engines we work with brand new platforms mobile for instance we work with brand new genres we work with multiplayer only game for instance and um, we work with uh, first-time staff on our side okay these are all different risk factors paradox is that we took we said you know what this is a long shot and we just said, you know what, just pile as much risk as humanly possible onto this project. Instead of saying, you know what, this is a huge risk when it comes to the original concept. But how about we not take a risk when it comes to the platform that we'll be releasing this game on or the technology that we're using to uh, build this game on. And I think that when people like at our Christmas party, sometimes people get a bit too drunk and they approach me. And I'm like, why do we keep signing these weird games? Like, <laughs> oh, who approaches why? you? Who approaches you? Tell me. I, I can, but they approach me like, why do we, why and this last, just this latest uh, Christmas party, one of our, uh, one of our best, uh, my, one of my most talented colleagues approached me and, and he or she was like, why did we sign floaty boats? And floaty boats was the internal uh, derogatory name that we sometimes used for uh, Leviathan warships. And she was like, or he was like, um, you, everyone can clearly see that this is not going to be a good game. Why are we signing these games? And I was like, you know what? Damn, why didn't somebody just tell me that this game wasn't going to be good? If I only would have known that. And it's, it's never that. It's like Star Void. I would still go back and sign that game probably. But what I wouldn't do is that I wouldn't make it based on, on an, in, in an entirely new engine. I would perhaps not make it multiplayer only. I would perhaps not assign a first-time producer to that game, for instance. Um, and these are just hypotheticals. But when we take risks in the future, you'll still see us doing like a weird-ass project somewhere. But we'll probably do it in a tested with the tested technology, with an experienced producer, in a genre that we really understand, on a platform that we know really well. So uh, a gr another great example is that now that Leviathan Warships is out and we have, has, have built a fairly stable foundation, we can take that and take it to the next level and maybe do something crazy based on Leviathan. And do and take that to the next level. So that's that's that. Those are the ways that we try to take risks, but at the same time mitigate the disastrous results that could occur and, due to the risk. And certain things that, from our point of view, or from from other people's point of view, sorry, look like it's very low risk and playing it very safe. For example, Magicka Wizard Wars, which is on a known known IP, which is Magicka, which is hugely popular and has millions of players worldwide, and making that into what people call a MOBA. Now, a MOBA typically has the three-lane system that Dota, League of Legends, and Heroes of New Earth and those are, are using. But from there are so many things that separate Wizard Wars from the other like MOBA-like games, if you call them that. First of all... It's not a MOBA. It's not a MOBA, first of all. And second of all... This game is not only about killing your enemies, it's also about killing your friends. It's basically killing everyone on the screen and having a great time even dying. So it's going to be friendly fire is going to be such a huge difference from the other games in, in terms of experience. I mean, I play League of Legends, like just after we finish this call, I'm going to challenge, no, we're going to play together, me and Shams, Aram in League of Legends, uh, the new game mode since half a year back or so. But it looks like a safe bet, 
but we don't want to make it safe because we don't want to make the three lanes. We don't want to make it into a traditional League of Legends-like game. We want to make this a totally, what, what to us sounds like something we really want to play that no one has ever done before. And uh, that's the way we, we work. And I think if you work that way, you're going to take some more risk and maybe the reward might be higher if people actually like it. It might also be very... Uh, it might be tougher on you as well because people don't really know the gameplay. They don't really know how they're supposed to do things and they might give it up because they invested so many hours into their other online PvP games. Hmm. So yeah, I don't know really what I wanted to say. I don't know really it's, either. It's like, uh, yeah. But regarding risk, I mean, what, appearances are definitely deceiving. Uh, I mean, even internally at Paradox, the guys and girls in the PDS team sometimes don't really see uh, they don't they don't see which games are successful or not we're not i mean we don't openly broadcast every single figure of fact or how much revenue how much money a game made or lost uh, on a regular basis so from an outward perspective sometimes they can approach us and think uh, oh, we saw that we got two bad bad reviews for two games in a row does that mean that we're doing really poorly and we're like no we got bad reviews but the game is selling fairly well we'll make the money back so the appearances are definitely deceiving and that also relates to what is from the outside perceived as risky um yeah so i don't know from your perspective would you say what would you say are the two most riskiest projects that we've done uh boy the riskiest projects that you've done uh well armored warfare i think has to be has to be there uh that was a huge risk uh obviously you know how it worked out but it was it was incredibly risky at the time uh let's see um other other risky projects um Boy, it's tough to tough to do this without hindsight. Okay, so I, I guess what I, what I'd look at and say say is really risky are games like uh, uh, Cities in Motion, right? Because it's not really a city builder. City builders that's a that's a well known genre, and you know that that is a fairly significant audience. You're making that that's a that's a transit simulator. I would say though, from internally speaking, Cities in Motion is one of the safest cards that we have. From when it comes to the publishing, of the external titles. When it comes to See, yeah. I, see, I find that fascinating because I think the way a lot of people would look at it from the outside is, oh my god, that has such narrow appeal. Uh, it's the gameplay is going to be so excluding uh, for so many people. Like I've played it. I was I was literally fine-tuning bus schedules. Uh, it was like my vision of hell trying to get through Boston, basically. And that's and that's this game. But so from the outside looking in, I'm like, oh man, you have to be like, it takes nerve to publish that because right there, you're just saying it's going to, it's going to have a tiny little audience and it, it looks, it certainly looks good. It looks like, you know, it looks, it looks like a, a, a big studio made it. So from the outside, it looks like kind of a high risk, low return sort of thing. You're telling me that's not true. And I find that really interesting. It's, it's, it's not going to break the bank for us to, I mean, we're not going to get super rich off of it and we're not going to uh, go bankrupt if it does poorly, but it's one of those solid, steady burn kind of games that just has its it, it has a core audience. It probably won't branch out much besides that core audience. It's a it's what we call it's a perfect niche. We know exactly what those people want, and we give them exactly what they need. So it's in 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 those respects, it's it's a very very safe card because we're not trying to do something really spectacular with that game. Um, there there isn't there almost no competition whatsoever. The closest competition is Transport Tycoon, basically. 
There is also the, uh, the old expectations game that we're mentioning all the time. And to tell people this is not a city builder, because it certainly looks like it when you just watch the screenshots. So uh, it's... Um, I posted like hundreds of Facebook updates, not hundreds, but tens at least, saying like, just make sure that you don't believe this is a city builder because you're going to be really disappointed. It's a transport simulator. Yeah. And if you like transport simulator, transport simulators is going to be the best in the market. But if you like city builders, you should play another game. So you have to be honest to the gamers as well. The the change in psychology is interesting though because I think you know certainly in mainstream publishing, uh, the movement has almost universally been get rid of games like that that are on the list. It doesn't matter if they're profitable; it's just the profit is too small. They they might be reliable, but their scale doesn't matter. Is it just a matter of scale that you're that you're at, or is it also just a matter of philosophy where you just don't turn your back on a profitable niche? Partly that, but it's I mean th that's the benefit of not having being beholden to. Uh, external uh, investors, right? I mean, we don't have to sit down with an upside down kind of way of looking at games. The first question we don't we ask ourselves when we look at a new game is not will this make us 50 million dollars? It doesn't have to make a 500% return on revenue, right? The first question we ask is that is this a fun game? Is this something that works with Paradox DNA? Then we see, okay, if that's true, can we make money off of this game? If the, the answer is yes to that as well, that's when we proceed with the game. But today with other publishers, and I won't name names, but essentially they have to, they, the question they start asking is that, first of all, they need a game that can make them a couple hundred million dollars. And when you start with that question, well, inevitably, whatever follows is that, okay, so what kind of games can make that kind of money? And then you narrow it down further. Well, it probably has to be a shooter or some kind of open world sandboxy experience. And the third answer is that, well, what about the quality requirements? Well, it probably has to look really kick-ass. And we, of course, are really happy if a game makes a return on investment of a th several thousand percent. But if it costs a tenth of what Assassin's Creed costs, we'd much prefer to do 10 of those projects than do one project that does immensely well. Just, we just don't like to put that many eggs in one basket. It just makes no sense, especially since we're not trying to cater to the big, big masses. We're trying to go for a very specific niche. Right, and I, I remember just a, a few days or weeks before we all met up in Stockholm, uh, Square Enix had had that disastrous earnings report, right? Uh, where they kind of admitted that they'd projected uh, that, what was it, Tomb Raider sold like 5 million, and <laughs> it failed to meet expectations. Yeah. Um, and the expectations have been adjusted because Hitman Absolution didn't do well. So they'd simply said, well, Tomb Raider will therefore make more money uh, to make their previous, you know, it's this sort of, this sort of vicious uh, circle that, uh, you know, investor relations can lead to. Uh, it, was, it was really interesting to see the way that, like, you know, once you start with the question of how much revenue uh, it will make, it seems very easy for some, for some publishers to also just start by picking a number almost out of thin air without really examining whether you're going yeah, to get there. Yeah, exactly. That was a really good example because what they announced was that uh, Tomb Raider had the best opening in the, fran the history of the franchise, right? And still, it didn't make enough money. That tells you so much about w what kind of state we are in right now when it came, comes to AAA development and what kind of requirements are put on games. And I think that that then comes back and stifles uh, design. It comes back and stifles uh, innovation. And it kind of... Shoeholds us into uh, shoehorns us into a, a bad position uh, overall for games. So, 
you know, for for my own personal interest, because uh, th- there were a few there were a few Paradox games over the years that I sort of had a special soft spot for, and I kind of want to ask what became of games like Octung Panzer. Okay. Yeah, that was actually the uh, the game, uh, the technology, and the game in itself belonged to uh, to the Russian team who created it, and it actually was that we couldn't sell it. Steam actually rejected to take it when we published it three years ago. So, unfortunately, really? yeah. So we lost a big part of the market there, and uh, <clears throat> so we couldn't go. We couldn't continue developing that series. Now they could probably use it, do it on green light though, and get it online if enough war gamers are there for it. I I really liked the reason we picked it up was that the design was like we liked the design on our games, which we call uh, uncompromising but rewarding, is how you could de- describe Actung Panzer. And it, so the game is good, and and the team has really found its niche, and they're doing these types of games really well. So all the best of luck for that. To that to that team, and I really hope uh, we're going to see them on Steam in the future. Now, do you do you think uh, you know had it, had they been accepted to Steam a couple years ago? Do you think it would have made sense for you to continue that relationship? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, we all know that games games that are on uh, Steam sell more than games that aren't on Steam. This, uh, so uh, who knows? I mean, uh, the game was very niche in that sense. One of my favorite memories from that game was one of the first patch notes where they had improved the uh, grenade trajectory spline calculations when grenades are thrown through foliage. Crucial. It was crucial, exactly. It was it was that kind of like you could totally geek out on the specifics, and in that in that sense, it was really a paradox game. Uh, but uh, I think it was it was also it was very long time ago, and it was maybe one of the last games that we co-published. I think um, exactly. So what the for those that don't know, what we essentially do as a publisher, either either we fund. Uh, and pay for every single pixel in a game from the start to finish, or we, or somebody comes to us with a, f- a more or less a finished game, and we just help them publish it. Um, and uh, Achtung Panzer was one of those games that where it was more or less done. They came to us and we helped them publish it. But from that point on, especially after Magica took off, we've almost exclusively done um, fully funded projects. We funded every single project. Uh, out of our own pockets and uh, we've just now recently uh, again have released or are going to release a game that we uh, are co-publishing that would be Knights of Pen and Paper. Now the last question I wanted to ask you guys is about pricing uh, because Paradox I thought with games like Auction Pans I remember that came out at $20 Uh, I want to say if Crusader Kings 2 was ever full price it wasn't full price very long it seemed like no time at all before I was seeing that at $20 as well Uh, did it launch at $40? yes which one? which game? Crusader Kings 2 well it's still at $40 it's still at $40 I was there a big sale over the winter I feel like at every it was on sale so often at $20 that I just now sort of think of it as a $20 you noticed that didn't you? Yes, that's I, how it I, works. What was it? Was it on sale that open? It's I, I know the, it's still. It's it's still for it's still thirty nine on Steam and it should we'll, be yeah. and uh, I think it's gonna stay there for a while. But yeah, but we frequently have our games on sale uh, to coincide with different events and stuff like that. There's a natural cycle to uh, to that. Yeah, but we also have we also have a lot of games in our portfolio now, like seventy five games. It feels like we have a game on sale every day. No, that's not the case, but. At least every week. <laughs> yeah, every, every week there's something. So 
But I, I sort of feel like they're they're among some niche publishers. Um, you know, Matrix I think is the one that comes most to mind, where there's this there's this belief that because you're making games for a smaller audience, you need them you you need each individual member of that audience to maybe pay up a little more to make that sector uh, viable. And my question is. Uh, First of all, is this, this the difference between the sort of games you make and then being a hardcore niche wargame publisher, uh, or do you do you feel that you know the lessons you've learned with lower pricing is just sort of globally ac- applicable, uh, and in your experience, lower prices means uh, better sales, better revenue. I I don't want to tell other people how they're supposed to run their business. Yeah. But uh, the way we see it is that we don't only compete with other war games or strategy games. We compete with all forms of entertainment. So people have to choose whether they want to pay $40 for one of our games or $10 for one of our games or $10 for something completely different. Like go watch a movie or go do something else that, that is entertaining to you. So you're competing with a lot of different things. And... So pricing is a very delicate issue. It's very hard to know in advance like how to price a product. You could you could you could base it on your uh, uh, you could base it on how much it costs to develop the game, or you could base it on a lot of different uh, factors. But I don't believe that you need to have a sixty-dollar title to to break even. Then you have to adjust how much it costs to make the game, basically. So yeah, and I think that we've we've that's another thing that we've experimented with a lot over the course of the years. We've released grand strategy games at a lower price point. At the normal price point, we tried additional content in the form of gameplay or content that's purely cosmetic. So uh, one thing that I think that all publishers need to learn from Kickstarter, at least, is that setting a game at one specific price point and then uh, anticipating that every single customer will uh, will resonate with that specific price point that's very wrong what we've seen with kickstarter is that uh, if you have 20 40 50 60 different price points well, you'll hit different target groups and one of the things that we're definitely doing is that we're introducing different kind of price points to play around with and uh, giving players other options to give us money in the way uh, that works for them and trying to be more flexible with that and when it comes to things like the micro expansions, the DLC, the cus- the uh, you know expanded portrait selection for uh, for characters in CK2, uh, how how has that stuff worked out for you? It's it's worked out well. Uh, it's uh, stuff that people have been asking for, and people are buying them. Yeah, people are enjoy them immensely, and people are asking for more. Uh, there's always a vocal min- minority that uh, don't like them. But um, that's always how it is. There's always going to be a small crowd that don't like them. And uh, what we're seeing now based off of the numbers and what, what people are telling us is that they want more of everything. And um, yeah, so we'll keep on doing that. And I think the, uh, the model that we use for CK2 is, is really good as well. That <coughs> all the DLC and the expansions are optional. So you can still play multiplayer against people i think that has all the expansions and all the all the other stuff but you have to pay to unlock different playable uh, uh factions which i think is fair so you receive all the upgrades all the different options everything but you unlock factions uh, and pay for them which keeps our development team uh, d- p- p- paid and making them come out with new stuff and update the game. So I, I think that's actually the best way to to do it. 
so obviously today we had the big Xbox console reveal. Uh, we've already learned about sort of what PS4 is going to be, and uh, we have yet to see the hardware, but uh, that that will probably be coming at E3. Uh, now, now, Fred, I remember at our at in Stockholm, you you were talking about sort of the future paradox, and you know, looking forward to the day when more of your games were on a console. So, you know, real talk here for a second. Your games aren't console games. Come on. How, how, how can you how can you play con- you, like I don't see the I, I have a hard time envisioning the day where PDS games are ever going to find a real home on console. No, but I, I think that the definition of console PC is something that is artificial and made up because it's all about how you actually how you run the game controller wise and and with a console you typically use a gamepad on a computer you use a mouse and keyboard and then you have the the uh, thresholds to get into the console technically as well because Microsoft and Sony has been very protective on who can actually publish stuff for their consoles and if you saw I saw the Microsoft uh, announcement now and it was kind of what I expected it was very American it was by Americans for Americans and I guess like 10% of these services that they presented with TV and everything is even even gonna work outside of the United States Uh, so uh, we didn't see much new things coming out from I think Sony's focus on more indie games and more streaming and more hardcore gaming was was more appealing to me and and uh, I think our games maybe could find a home there to begin with. I don't know. We're not pushing our games onto new consoles just like that. But if it works, it works. If it doesn't work, we'll just continue doing what we're doing. I think we want to reach our gamers first and foremost, not reach new consoles. I think that um, for us, it's uh, we had a conversation right after the Sony announcement. Microsoft called us and they asked us, "So, what would you like to see in?" Uh, in an announcement from us and I'll ask him an announcement about what and he was like I really can't say so (laughs) and ultimately we talked a bit about a new uh, console for them and uh, he asked me quite bluntly what would you like to see in a console from us and I said that I would like to see a console where I can connect a mouse and keyboard to it and I will also like to be able to deploy new content whenever I want however I want and he said so basically you want a PC and I said yeah that's exactly what I want and I think that for us, it, it doesn't. What we know that there are gamers on the Xbox who would, uh, on the console market, who would like uh, grand strategy games. That doesn't necessarily mean that a grand strategy game or EU4 is a console game, but it's it's a simple matter of how do you interface with the console. And as long as the 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 main mode of input is your body. <laughs> or gestures or a yeah. gamepad it's going to be a challenge that doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to drop everything that we're doing and just shoehorn EU4 into a console but we don't want to rule anything out we like to be we like to be with our games where our gamers are and we know that there are gamers on the consoles it's just a matter of when when will uh when will the console makers uh make it easier for the gamers to play grand strategy game on on consoles. On the other hand, I I think that all our games should have gamepad support going forward. Like not not now or not maybe tomorrow, 
But in a year or two years from now, that would be great. Because it gives us more options to play our games. It gives our gamers more options to play the game. Maybe you want to connect your PC to the TV and play it on the TV with the controller. And then we, we're giving them that option. We're not pushing our stuff onto new console yeah, the, just because there's a new console this is a point where i kind of disagree with fred um i think that there are some games that fundamentally if you want to have them controller enabled for a if you are to experience them in the full way that they're intended as they are now you have to make so many sacrifices to the gameplay or you have to change it so considerably that it's it's not something that would be it can be readily imagined, I think. That it's no, no, I, that is exactly what people said about shooters 12 years ago. So it's, um, no, but it's not I a am. new discussion. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> I just don't see it that way. I think it's uh, yeah. uh, like gamepad, gamepads have existed for a long time. It's just a simple matter of the, the, the sheer complexity of the things you're doing um, in Victoria. To be able to do that with a touch input or uh, um, a gamepad would require so much work that it just wouldn't be worth it. Well, first of all, we haven't really sat down. We, we haven't explored it, so absolutely. We can't really say that. And sure. That's what I'm saying. I'm just saying that... You don't want to rule that out? I don't. I never want to rule anything yeah. out. I, I like these challenges, like like the game The Cargo. Like that, That's the type of stuff, stuff I'd like at least to try and see, like, does this work? So, first of all, Let's sit down for a few hours and see, can we map a gamepad to fit with a grand strategy game? We're not going to force it to work if it doesn't work. If it doesn't work after a while, we'll figure out, you know, well, we, we can never make this work. Fine, at least we tried it. God, part of me just wants to keep throwing gasoline on this fire and see if we can get champs <laughs> fired on the air. Because, man, that would be like must-listen podcasting. Yeah, we've had this discussion a number of times. And I think that I, I agree. It's, let's keep that door open. But, like, there are so many more exciting doors to explore. Uh, so I think we'll leave it there for, for tonight. Um, you know, thank you both for a fantastically frank discussion and uh, – you know, being good sports about uh, maybe re rehashing some bad history and paradox, uh, but it's it's fantastic to sort of get this view on uh, paradoxes inner workings from your perspective. Cool. Thanks yeah, for having thanks, us. Thank you for letting us come in, and and we're always we always try to be transparent and be honest about how we work and what we're doing. So you're always welcome to ask us questions about basically anything, and we we reply directly on Twitter as well as you know. So just shoot us a question, and we'll be there. All right, well, that'll do it for tonight's episode. Uh, as always, our thanks to Michael Hermes for producing this uh, tonight's episode. And uh, once again, thanks to the guys from Paradox for spending their evening uh, talking about talking talking shop with us. This has been Three Moves Ahead. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night.